0: said last week shortly after i was saved though i knew that god was leading me into ministry i knew very little about ministry early on i, I thought rightly about salvation and the fact that it is a work that god does but i viewed ministry as a work that i do and early on i became prideful in my ministry thinking that the work of ministry was on me and the fruits that come from ministry were because of me. Fortunately, God taught me at times early on the hard way that that was not the case. He showed me through trials and he showed me through his word my need of him and that ministry is not something I do in my own strength and by my own power, but it's something he empowers me to do. It's something He enables me to do. It's something that He does in and through me. That's what we're going to be talking about today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 13 this morning. As we said last week, this event recorded in this passage is one of the most important events in the history of Christianity. We're talking about Christian history earlier. This is one of the most important events because this event tells of the birth of the church, which is why this passage is so important. It's also a very popular passage of scripture because of the details in this event. There has been a lot of ink spilled, as I said last week, and a lot of trees killed, and hours upon hours spent Discussing and debating what takes place here in this passage and what it means for us today. And we discussed last week that because of that, because people get so bogged down in the details of this event, many often miss the fact that in this passage, Luke gives us a great description of what Christian ministry looks like. In Acts 1... Before his ascension, Christ promised his followers that the spirit of God was going to come. He was going to be poured out in a special way. And he tells them after that, they're going to be empowered on high by him. He says, you're going to go out and you're going to do this great work of ministry. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to take my message. You're going to advance God's kingdom to the ends of the earth but only after the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you to do so. Well, here in Acts 2, 1-13, through 13, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of Christian ministry in and through the church. And in this passage of Scripture, we get a, a glimpse here of what Christian ministry looks like. And there are five principles that I've drawn out from this passage about Christian ministry. We looked at one last week. So we're going to try to get further along today, okay? But look again with me real quickly at this first point in review. The first point we see here in Acts 2 about Christian ministry is this. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's ministry. Again, remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 5... Christ promised his disciples that they were going to be baptized by and dwelt with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And after that, they were then going to be empowered by him to then go out and do the work of ministry. He says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that after they are indwelt with, after they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they will then go out and be his witnesses, Christ's witnesses, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, but only after the Holy Spirit comes. And that's exactly what happens, right? First part of Acts chapter 2, we learn that the Holy Spirit does come in a big way, in a powerful way. We're told in verse 1 that all of a sudden, without warning, he enters into the house where these 120 faithful followers of Christ are held up and he not only enters into the house, but he enters into every one of them. And they are then baptized, submerged, immersed, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Remember we spoke last week about the fact that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Luke describes it here in Acts chapter 2, is the event where God's Holy Spirit enters in to a person who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation and takes him or her and places him or her into the universal body of believers it is for the most part a one-time event that occurs for everyone the moment they make Christ Lord we said the moment you give your life to christ you are made right with god justification you become a child of god adoption and you're indwelt with the very spirit of god and you become a part of the universal church of god baptism of the holy spirit and for more on that explanation you'll have to get online and let's do the sermon from last week because we don't have time to go into all that today, all right? So, so we learn here in the first few chapters of Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit comes and enters into Christ's followers and he indwells them, brings them together, makes them one body. And because of this event, Christ's followers are then able to be filled with, and empowered by His Holy Spirit so they can then go out and accomplish His great work of ministry. And that's exactly what happens. We're told that they go out, they turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the true power behind God's ministry. Yet, though that's the case, we also learn believers are the vessels used in God's ministry. That's point number two. Notice what happens here after God's people are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled, that's key, mark that, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Last week, I made a distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe Scripture makes this distinction for us pretty clearly. Whenever the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, get this, it refers to one's permanent spiritual identity... Whereas the filling of the Holy Spirit refers to one's ongoing spiritual activity. The baptism of the Holy Spirit declares you to be a certain way and the filling of the Holy Spirit enables you to live a certain way. Said the baptism of the Holy Spirit So when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, brings that believer into union with Christ and into the universal body of Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit is when a believer is under the influence of the indwelling spirit, is guided and directed and empowered by him. Remember, Paul made this distinction in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says to the believers of his day, you were, past tense, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have been baptized. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to our permanent spiritual state. And then in Ephesians 5, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be continually filled with wine. With the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on to list all the fruits that come from being Spirit-filled. In Acts two, I believe Luke makes a distinction as well. In Acts two one through three, he speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the the act by which the Holy Spirit seals believers with Christ and brings them together in Christ as a universal body, and then in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 notice what Luke says after those in the house have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit he says and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance they were already sealed with the Spirit and the Spirit fills them controls them, empowers them and moves them to do this great work you have this godly and miraculous activity accompanying the filling of the Holy Spirit. You with me? We're told that they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit and then filled with the Holy Spirit. And after that, they immediately go and they're speaking in other languages in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what, how John MacArthur explained it. Look at this quote up here. He says this, The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost first of all to baptize believers into the body secondly to fill those believers for powerful testimony that's what happened and and we're going to talk more about what they did in just a moment but the main point I want you to get here is this listen to this though the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's ministry listen believers are the vessels he uses in ministry Get this, folks, if you've been saved, if you've been chosen by God, you've been called out by Him and set apart for Him. You've been called out of this world to be His witnesses to the world. You remember I said last week that it's wrong of us to think of God's ministry as being on our shoulders and in our hands and take all the credit that comes. From his ministry well guess what it's also wrong for us to think hey god's got this he's in control i'm just gonna sit back and i'm gonna coast that's not to be our attitude either like the believers here in acts chapter 1 and 2 believers you have been chosen by god you have been called out of this world by him to then go back into the world and be his witnesses that's the takeaway here that's the application there are so many people who get caught up in the ins and outs of the details of this event like how the spirit came on them and what exactly happened and whether or not these types of experiences happen today and they completely miss the reason why this event happens the reason The Spirit comes upon them and indwells them and empowers them is so that they would be equipped to then go out and do ministry. That's why the Spirit of God has been given to us, folks. He has, of course, been given to us to seal us for that future day when Christ returns. He has come to... Bring us into the universal body of Christ and make us one with all other believers. He is our guarantee, our security, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. He has also been given to us to work in us, to grow us in godliness, and to make us more like Christ. But he has also been given to us to work through us in ministry. So we learn from this passage, the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's ministry, believers are the vessels used in God's ministry. And number three, we learn the nations are the target of God's ministry. Notice where we see this. Look at verses four through 11. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse seven. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes? and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt. Are you impressed yet? And I practiced this a few times. (laughs) And parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of god so notice what we have here while these disciples of christ are held up in this house in jerusalem on the day of pentecost the spirit comes down on them like the sound of a of a mighty rushing wind and he fills the entire house and he enters into everyone in the house and we're told that after that they are they are filled with the holy spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues And notice verse 5, we're told that there was staying in Jerusalem devout Jews from every nation under heaven. There were many Jews who at this time in the first century were living all over the known world. Did y'all know that? We don't often think about that, right? We often think about them being in and around Jerusalem because we mainly hear about the work going on there in the Scriptures. But they were living all over. They were living all over the place in different nations. And we learned why that was the case when we studied through the minor prophets this past fall, right? Toward the end of the study, we learned that God finally sends them into exile because of their wickedness. And though many return after exile, many remained where they were. So by the first century, there were Jews all over the place. Many different nations. Now, why are they in Jerusalem? Well, some of them had probably moved back to Jerusalem from other areas over time, but there were others who were probably in town visiting because Pentecost was a big deal. In fact, I was reading in my devotional reading this morning in Exodus 23, where God tells the Jewish people, there are three feasts that you must have every year. And one of those was the Feast of Harvest the Feast of Pentecost. This was a very, very big deal. So they were probably in for this Jewish holiday. They're in Jerusalem at this time. And in verse 6, we we find that they, they hear this sound, probably the sound of the mighty rushing wind, right, that came through this house. So they follow the noise, and they gather to where these disciples of Christ are And we're told that they witnessed this group of what I believe to be 120 scholars differ. Some say it was 12, some say it was 120. I believe this is the start of the church. So all 120 would be there. And they witnessed them speaking in tongues. And it says when they witnessed this, they are amazed and astonished. Now let's stop there for just a minute and let's answer this question. What does Luke mean when he says they were speaking in tongues? Were they speaking in this other worldly, heavenly language or were they speaking in foreign languages? I mean, that's a big matter of debate there in this discussion, right? What does Luke mean? Well, Luke tells us. Three different times he tells us that they were speaking, when he tells us they were speaking in tongues, what that means is they were speaking in a language other than their native language. Let me show you the three places where we see this. Look at verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, first notice the phrase, his own And then the Greek word used for language here is dialecto. It's where we get our word dialect. So they heard this group of Jews speaking in their own dialect, in their own native tongue, in their own language. Look at verse 8. And how is it, they say, that we hear each of us in his own native language? There's that word again, dialecto. And then at the end of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, another word for tongue is used here. It's the Greek word glosa, which also means language. So notice what we have here. You have all of these Jews from all of these different nations who speak all of these different languages and they're in Jerusalem, some probably in from out of town due to Pentecost and all of a sudden they hear this sound of a mighty rushing wind and they quickly gather to see what's going on and when they gather, they, they see all these Galileans and they hear them speaking in their native language and we're told that they were amazed. They were astonished. Notice They say here, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? I mean, these are uneducated Galileans. Who wouldn't know how to speak all these different languages? Notice how many were being spoken. Luke says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and pamphylia egypt and the parts of libya belonging to cyrene and visitors from rome both jews and proselytes cretans and arabians now why does luke take the time to list all of these out well think about that for a minute one this highlights the miraculous nature of this event right These disciples weren't just speaking one or two languages. If that were happening, some skeptics might come along and say, well, they just know a couple of languages. We got a couple of uh, educated Galileans in the group. They can explain it away, but you can't do that here. Notice Luke mentions 15 or more people groups here. There are all kinds of languages being spoken. This here is an incredible and miraculous event. And another reason why I believe Luke mentions all of these different people groups and nations here is to show that God, get this, is a missional God. And his message is for all peoples everywhere. That's the point of of tongues. When you see it in the scripture, it, it highlights this. God is a missional God. Notice, Luke says, there were devout men from every nation under heaven represented, and then he says, they all heard the message of Jesus' disciples, the message of the mighty works of God in their own native language. Folks, you cannot get away from this in Scripture. God is clear in His word that He is a missional God. He is a God who desires to be known where he is not known by all peoples everywhere. And I believe that this unique and special event that we have here highlights that truth. Now, some will argue with me and say, well, this is not that unique. Right, because it happens more than once in this book alone. Well, let me explain to you why I believe that's the case and why I still affirm that this event is unique. Though these believers have a delayed experience with the Holy Spirit that resulted in them speaking in tongues. And, and though we see that happen again in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts 10, the reason I believe it happens initially like this is because one, there has to be this point in time when Christ leaves in a physical sense and the Spirit comes in an obvious and powerful way because Christ said he would, right? He said the Spirit would not come he could not come until Christ's work was completed until he, Jesus, returned to be with the Father. And so there had to be this designated time for the Spirit to come in this mighty way upon all of Christ's disciples. And when he came, he did come in an obvious and unique and powerful way to showcase who he was and what he came to to do, And some of you will hear that and say, okay, then why do we have a similar experience in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 10? We'll get this. When we get to Acts chapter 8, we learn that the disciples at that time are ministering to Samaritans. And in Acts chapter 10, we learn that they're ministering to Gentiles. Consider the Samaritans for a moment. Remember, we've said this in the past. The Jews did not care for the Samaritans in the least bit, did they? That's putting it lightly. They despised them. So you would probably think after coming to Christ, many of the Jews would... Probably view the Samaritans as being second rate Christians. And the reason why is because they already viewed them as being second rate Jews. So, in order to prevent that from happening, the Spirit of God worked in a similar way as He did with the Jews so that they would know there is no difference. And notice that God has some very important and influential Jews there to witness the Holy Spirit work amongst the Samaritans. We're told John was there. We're also told that Peter was there. Why? So they they could then go back to the Jews and say, you'll never believe it. The Samaritans got what we got. See, the Spirit is working in this way between these two groups to bring them together, to make them one in Christ. He does the same thing with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. In Acts 10, we'll learn Peter was there once again along with other influential Jews and they witnessed the Spirit working amongst the Gentiles in the same way. Why? So that they could then go back to the Jews and say, you'll never believe it. The Gentiles got the same thing that we and the Samaritans got. Similar experience also happens in Acts 19 when Paul was in Ephesus. There he found some disciples of John the Baptist. This group didn't fit the other two categories. They were not disciples who had been with Jesus. They were not Samaritans. They were not Gentiles. They were Jewish disciples of John, and they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They are like, Holy Spirit, who's he? We're followers of John. We are baptized by him. So Paul shares Jesus with them. They get saved and baptized. Paul lays hands on them, and and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. Notice, by the way, this is happening amongst these different groups of people where the gospel is first being preached. And And again, I believe one of the main reasons this is happening in this way is to break down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between jews and samaritans and jews and gentiles and disciples of christ and disciples of john the spirit of god is coming upon these people in this way to bring these groups of people together and make them one in christ to show god's message is for all peoples and to show that god's target For ministry is the nations. God wants to be known, folks, by Jews. He wants to be known by Samaritans. He wants to be known by Gentiles. He wants to be known by those who are way off and followers of no one and wants to be known by those who are close by and followers of the wrong one. He wants to be known by the uninformed and the misinformed, those who are ungodly and those who are misguided. He wants to be known by all peoples everywhere. The world, the nations are the target of God's ministry. Notice what else we learn. We also learn there is only one of two responses to God's ministry. There has to be a response. There's only one of two. Look at verse 12 through 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? This crowd is experiencing this strange, unique, miraculous work of God, and we're told they are amazed. They are are perplexed, they're astonished, they're confused. They're saying to one another, what does this mean? I I believe this group that's asking this question were really open and eager and wanting to hear more about the true God and His Son that He sent to accomplish His great work of salvation and wanted to hear more about this incredible work of His Holy Spirit. But notice here, there are also some skeptics in the bunch and there always are, aren't there? Always skeptics in the crowd. Look at verse 13. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. All throughout God's word, you have one of two responses to God's message and ministry. You have those who are open and who want to hear more and those who are closed and who are cynical and skeptical and reject his message and ministry that's what i believe we have here you have some who are amazed some who want to hear more and others who are saying ah these guys are just drunk let me tell you you talk about poor discernment you got it right here these guys are speaking in foreign languages and they pass it off as being intoxicated that must have been some strong stuff you ever known if somebody get drunk and they start speaking in perfect chinese no. But this always happens, doesn't it? When it, when it? when it comes to the miraculous work of God, you always have some who accept it as being a work of God and others who just explain it away. And when God's gospel message is shared, you have some that are open to it, some that respond to it, and some who are completely closed and reject it without even taking the time to really consider it. And the question for us today is this. The question for you today is this. What say you? What is your response to God's ministry? What is your response to God's message? Have you accepted it? Have you accepted God's free gift of salvation? Are you trusting in His Son alone for your salvation? Or have you rejected it? Have you responded with belief in Christ or with skepticism and unbelief. I hope and pray you've responded with faith. And if you have not, I hope and pray that today be the day you get it right. Today be the day you turn from your sin and you respond favorably to God's Son. Notice one more thing here. We learn in this chapter not only is the Holy Spirit the power behind God's ministry and that believers are the vessels he uses in God's ministry and that the nations are the target of God's ministry and that there is only one of two ways to respond to God's ministry. But we also learn in this passage, when it comes to God's ministry, Christ is the message of God's ministry. Notice here, That in response to those wanting to know more and in response to those who are cynical and skeptical of God's message and ministry, Peter stands up, he steps up, he begins to preach to them. And though we're going to discuss this sermon in greater detail next week, I want you to notice a few things Peter does here. First, he answers the skeptics and says this, Men of Judea, this is verse 14, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I like the way the NIV says it. It says it's only nine in the morning. So I like that. Peter uses logic here with these skeptics, right? He's saying it's too early to be drunk. No, that's not what's happening here. What you're witnessing is a work of God. This is a work of... Peter says that was prophesied by Joel hundreds of years ago. He mentions Joel in the the sermon we'll look at next week. He said this miraculous work, this is a work of God, this is a work that he promised long ago that would happen through his prophet. God spoke through Joel. We talked about Joel this last fall. And he prophesied that there was coming a day when the Spirit of God was going to come in a unique and special way and be poured out. He wasn't just going to come and work in and through particular leaders like he did in the Old Testament oftentimes when he worked through prophets and priests and kings. No, he says he's going to be poured out on all of those in Christ, on all flesh, sons and daughters, men and women, male and female servants. Peter is saying here, that day has come. This is what you're witnessing. The Holy Spirit has come. He has taken up residence in our hearts and lives, and he is empowering us to do this great work of ministry. He is going to give us the words to say and the power to accomplish this great work. And notice in verse 22, after explaining what has occurred, Peter then shares with the crowd, why these things have happened. Remember in Acts eight, the disciples are told that they are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. For what reason? To be Christ's witnesses, right? Christ is the central figure and his crucifixion and resurrection is the central message of God's ministry and after Peter is indwelt with the Holy Spirit and empowered by him he makes this message known he's being a great witness here folks for Christ and in this passage he teaches us about Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection so that get this verse 21 everyone who hears and calls upon him, and looks to him, and trusts in him, will be saved. We're told when Peter finishes his sermon, when he's finished teaching Christ, though there were some skeptics in the crowd, a great number of them were cut to the very core. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted and convinced of their own sinfulness and their need of a Savior and were told that 3,000 turned their lives over to the Lord Jesus on that day. What a revival that would have been. Folks, this right here is the point of Pentecost. It's right here. These men were... Empowered on high by the Holy Spirit so that they would then go out and be bold witnesses for Christ and that's exactly what they were and God used them to bring thousands into the kingdom. We have their testimony right here today in this book we have their message the message of christ's life the message of christ's death the message of christ's resurrection is god is is using their message this very day to save those who believe so i ask you again before we close what say you what do you say do you believe in this testimony or not will you trust in christ alone for your salvation, or will you reject him? How are you going to respond? If you've never made that decision, it's not a better time than right now to nail that down. Humble yourself. Turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus and be saved.